Let's open our Bibles to 1 Kings chapter number 11 this morning. 1 Kings chapter number 11. And uh, what a blessing it is to be with you today. Isn't it good to be here this morning? Folks that wish they'd be here that can't be here. And folks that wish they had a place to worship uh, aren't able to do so. I'm just thankful we're in the house of God this morning. 1 Kings chapter number 11. I want to take a few moments of your time to preach to you about a, an event, a principle uh, in the life of Solomon that I believe might be a help to us this morning. 1 Kings chapter number 11. We'll begin reading in verse number 1. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse number 1. We'll read down to verse 13. Word of God says, But King Solomon loved many strange women, together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites, of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, You shall not go into them, neither shall they come in unto you. For surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clave unto these in love. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites, that would be called elsewhere Moloch, and Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord, went not fully after the Lord as did David his father. Then did Solomon build an high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, in the hill that is before Jerusalem, and for Moloch, the abomination of the children of Ammon. And likewise did he for all his strange wives, which burnt incense and sacrificed unto their gods. The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned from the Lord God of Israel which had appeared unto him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he kept not that which the Lord commanded. Wherefore the Lord said unto Solomon, For as much as this is done of thee, and thou hast not kept my covenant and my statutes which I have commanded thee, I will surely rend the kingdom from thee and will give it to thy servant. Notwithstanding in thy days I will not do it for David thy father's sake, but I will rend it out of the hand of thy son. Howbeit I will not rend away all the kingdom, but will give one tribe to thy son for David my servant's sake and for Jerusalem's sake which I have chosen. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and thank you for your word, the purity of it, the power of it, Lord, the practicality of it. Lord, how precious it is in our lives that we have the word of God we can read it and know your mind and your heart. We're not left in the darkness, Lord, but you've brought us into the light through your word. And I pray that you would help us this morning as we study your word, as we preach your word. May we not in any way abuse it, Lord, or do damage or discredit to it or dishonor to it. But Lord, may we uplift the name of Christ. May we magnify him. And I pray that your people, Lord, as our hearts are open unto your word, we'd be submitted, surrendered, that you might be able to do a work in us. Lord, we love you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to notice the first verse of this chapter, and we'll use all of this chapter in the preaching and a few other places as well. The Bible says, But King Solomon loved many strange women together with the daughter of Pharaoh. I want to preach to you for a few moments this morning on the daughter of Pharaoh. And on this thought, the devil's daughter. As we study Pharaoh in the Word of God and as we study his daughter in the life of Solomon, I think we'll find some illuminating thoughts about what sin can do in our lives and what the devil desires to do in our homes and in our lives. But before we ever get to the preaching, can I notice a little three-letter word that's found there in verse number one? It's the first word of the chapter. The Bible says, but King Solomon loved many strange women. Now, how many of you know this is true? And you probably learned it in the early days of your English class. This is a conjunctive word. In other words, it ties together two thoughts, two ideas. And when the Bible begins the chapter this way, I think it's the Holy Ghost reminding us uh, that we ought to just take a moment, Brother Charlie, and look back in the chapter before and consider some of the things that took place. Undoubtedly, this chapter details to us the demise and destruction of the glory of Solomon. How'd that happen? When did that happen? How many of you know it's good not just to know what happened, but to know when it happened? Somebody say amen. Uh, when you were at, somebody's going to have to help me this morning, amen. If you can't say amen, cough this morning, but do something for me. Grunt or something. 
Uh, some of y'all were at Thanksgiving this uh, past uh, Thursday and somebody took the last piece of pumpkin pie. But it wasn't just the what you needed to know. It was the when and the who that you demanded to know about. Amen? When did you get this pie? Did you take it from me? Who took this pie from me? It's worthwhile not just to see the what, but to see the where and the when and the why. And so if we look back into the chapter before, you know what we find? We find that the Holy Ghost spends a little time bragging on Solomon. In fact, God goes out of His way to tell us some of the greatness of Solomon. It says back in uh, verse number 23 of chapter 10, So King Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth for riches and for wisdom. We read of his prudence. God goes out of his way to say Solomon was no dummy. He was no fool. In fact, he, the Bible tells us in other places, was the wisest man uh, outside of the Lord Jesus who is wisdom. Uh, that why that Solomon was the wisest man ever to live. So we read of his prudence. He's not an ignorant man. He's not a foolish man. We read in verses 24 and 25 of his prestige. It says all the earth sought to Solomon to hear his wisdom which God had put in his heart. And they brought every man his present, vessels of silver and vessels of gold and garments and armor and spices, horses and mules a rate year by year. In other words, we read of his prestige. Everybody knew who Solomon was. Everybody knew of his power and of his wisdom and of his glory. And he was not a man that was insignificant or obscure. You know, sometimes we like to think that we'd walk straighter and live straighter if we had more people watching us. But here's Solomon and everybody in the world is watching him and yet still his life falls into decline. And then we read in verses 26 through 29, we read of his prosperity. It says, Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen and he had a thousand and four hundred chariots and twelve thousand horsemen whom he bestowed in the cities for chariots and with the king at Jerusalem. And the king made silver to be in Jerusalem as stones. I wish I had that power. Somebody say amen. And cedars made he to be as the sycamore trees that are in the vale for abundance. And Solomon had horses brought out of Egypt and linen yarn. The king's merchants received the linen yarn at a price and a chariot came up and went out of Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And so for all the kings of the Hittites and for the kings of Syria did they bring them out by their means. In other words, he was not only no fool uh, and he was not only no obscure man, but he was no poor man. Solomon was one of the wealthiest men ever to live. In fact, it's hard for us to grasp. It's hard to uh, convert things over from one economy and one currency to another. But if you read the lavish wealth of the temple that Solomon built, if you read of the lavish wealth uh, that Solomon accrued, uh, his prosperity was one of the wonders of the ancient world. You know, sometimes we think to ourselves, well, if I had this or if I had that, I'd be able to really do something for God. I'd be able to really live for the Lord. I wouldn't have to make the compromises and decisions that I have to make. But here's Solomon... I'm saying he had everything going for him. But, but one thing changed everything. He had everything going for him. Can I tell you something? Your life and my life can turn on a dime if we fall the way Solomon did. But what happened? Well, our text tells us, but Solomon, uh, the, let me find it here. Let me grab my right one here. Uh, but King Solomon loved many strange women together with the daughter of Pharaoh. Now, there are three times in your King James Bible where Solomon is mentioned uh, in regards to the uh, king of uh, Egypt and Pharaoh's daughter. And I want us to take a moment this morning and I want us to notice these occasions. The first is found in our text before us today. But the story does not begin there. It begins back in chapter number 3. Look with me in chapter 3 at verse number 1. The Bible says this in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 1, And Solomon made affinity with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had made an end of building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall of Jerusalem round about. It is interesting to me, and we get a little hint of it, I think, in chapter 10. We read about all those chariots coming out of Egypt. We read about all those horses coming out of Egypt. We read about all that linen uh, coming out of Egypt. It, 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 it's interesting to note that the very first Gentile bride that Solomon ever takes to himself, it's not a daughter of the Ammonites or the Moabites or the Hittites, but rather it's a daughter of Egypt, the daughter of Pharaoh himself. Now, what does that suggest to you and me this morning? Somebody is sitting there saying, Preacher, this is good, everything. I feel sorry for Solomon, but what does this have to do with me? Well, I think if we look a little closer at what happened in Solomon's life, we'll find that though probably nobody's going to go find a Pharaoh and marry his daughter, that probably every one of us 
have the same potential for failure and for mistakes that Solomon had. You know why that is? Because I think Pharaoh is representative of some things in the Word of God. In fact, I would say this for us to rightly understand what this chapter means to us. It's important to acknowledge that Pharaoh in this chapter is a picture of Satan. Pharaoh is the king of Egypt. And in Scripture, Egypt is a picture of the world. It was the place of spiritual darkness and bondage that God's people were delivered from. Pharaoh was considered and worshipped as a god in Egypt. He was not merely the king of Egypt. He was considered a deity, a god in Egypt. Now, if Egypt's a picture of the world and Pharaoh's the god of that world, what does that remind us of? Doesn't it remind us of the devil? 2 Corinthians 4, 4 tells us that Satan is the god of this world. It's true that the God of the Bible is the God of the universe, but this world is under the sway and influence and power of Satan himself at this moment. You say, preacher, this why does God allow the world to be this way? Hey, listen, God's not the one causing or spurring the wickedness and chaos in this world. The universe is running just fine. Somebody say amen to that. All the stars are doing what they're supposed to. Ain't none of them marching. Ain't none of them burning anything down. Everything's looking just like it ought to be in the universe. It is this world under the jurisdiction of Satan that is reeling and roiling. So Pharaoh, he reminds me of Satan because he was the god of Egypt. Not only that, his name, the title Pharaoh reminds me of Satan. You know what it means? The name Pharaoh, the title Pharaoh, it means a great house. Now, doesn't that just remind us of what Satan desired from the very beginning? You know what Satan wanted? He wanted to ascend to the Almighty. Uh, he wanted to ascend on high. He wanted to elevate his throne above God's throne. We preached a little bit about that last week when we was talking about Athalia. Uh, he, he wanted to ascend and elevate his throne above. I'll tell you what Satan wanted. He wanted a great house. He wanted power. He wanted prominence. Uh, Pharaoh was the very embodiment of human grandeur. And when people looked at him, they thought, here is a God walking amongst us. And even that is significant. Even that reminds me of Satan. Because, you know, Pharaoh in Egypt claimed to be a God. But he wasn't just any God. In fact, in ancient Egyptian culture, Pharaoh was supposed to be a manifestation of their chief God, of Ra, the sun God. In fact, his name sort of harkens the term Ra. It, it associates with it. Ra to the Egyptians was the sun, was the God of the sun. And just as Ra and Pharaoh were counterfeits of the real God. How many of you know it wasn't Ra that was the father of lights? It's Jehovah that's the father of life. It's God the Father. He's the father of lights. And His Son Jesus, He's the Son of righteousness. He's the light of the world. What is the Son? The Son's the light of the world. Well, what is Jesus? He's the light of the world. So here's Pharaoh masquerading as, counterfeiting as Ra, the Son God. That reminds me of Satan. Because you know that's what the devil tries to do. Satan seeks to counterfeit God and His Son. In fact, Jesus is the light of the world. He's the Son of Righteous. But you know what Satan liked to style himself as in Isaiah 14, 12? He called himself the Son of the Morning. In other words, he's wanting to closely associate. He doesn't call himself the Prince of Darkness. The Bible calls him the Prince of Darkness. But he doesn't call himself the Prince of Darkness. He calls himself the Son of the Morning. You know why that is? He wants people to think he's like Jesus. He wants people to think. He wants people to worship Him and think they're worshiping Jesus. I'm afraid there's a lot of folks think they're worshiping Jesus today and they're not worshiping Him. Uh, so I, I see that He is, is the Son of the morning. In fact, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 11:14, He transforms Himself into an angel of light. And you say, preacher, what are you getting at? I'm trying to say this this morning. When we read of this passage, the way Pharaoh behaves, the way Pharaoh acts, what Pharaoh represents reminds us of the devil himself. You say, what happened to Solomon? Solomon fell prey to Pharaoh. What happens in the life of a believer that has everything going for him, that's living for God, that seems to be doing everything right? How could they fall into decline and destruction and disrepair in their spiritual well-being? How could that happen? The same way it happened to Solomon. They let the devil have a foothold in their life. Now, how does the devil do that? How does he accomplish that? Well, he didn't do it through Pharaoh. Pharaoh didn't walk up and bat his long Egyptian eyelashes at him and say, listen, big boy, why don't me and you just get married? Uh, in modern day, in current year, that might have happened. Somebody say amen. But back then, it didn't happen. Instead, you know what he said? He said, I've got a daughter that'd be just right for you, Solomon. I've got a daughter that'd be just right for you. Now, again, maybe, listen, I'm, I'm simple. I'm not an educated man. But if I'm trying to unriddle this, and I'm thinking to myself, here's Pharaoh, and he's obviously a picture of Satan. He always is in the Bible. Then who was Pharaoh's daughter? And, you know, I think to myself, Satan doesn't have... Uh, any children biologically, if we could speak of in terms like that. Now, he does have spiritual children. Uh, Christ said to the Pharisees here, of your father the devil. But if I really want to think, what was 
Pharaoh's daughter a picture of. I can't help but think Pharaoh's daughter is a picture of sin itself. Say, so why do you think that, preacher? Well, because one of her lineage, she is the daughter, she is the product, she is the offspring, she is the fruit of Pharaoh. You know that sin is the product and offspring of the devil himself. There was no sin in God's creation until Satan uh, sought to arise and set himself against God. Sin did not exist. The notion of walking contrary to the will and mind and heart of God did not exist until Satan said, I don't care what God wants, I'm going to do what I want, and I'm going to be God over my own life. He produced sin. We see that sin gets an entrance into the uh, human family through Satan. In Genesis chapter number 3, it was whenever uh, the uh, uh, Eve listened to the serpent uh, that she ate of the fruit. And then Adam, as a product of that, uh, chose to eat of the fruit. He wasn't deceived. The, uh, the, uh, the wife was, but he was not deceived. I'm saying this because of her lineage, she reminds me of sin. Not only that, uh, she reminds me of sin because of her luring. You say, what do you mean? Well, she lured Solomon. We read there in the text in chapter 3 and verse number 1, uh, the reason he made affinity with Pharaoh is so that he could take Pharaoh's daughter to be his wife. He wasn't interested in Pharaoh. You listening? He wasn't interested in Pharaoh. He was interested in Pharaoh's daughter. You know, most people, if you came up to them and said, you want to make a deal with the devil, they'd look at you cross-eyed. They'd look at you like you're crazy, man. They'd say, no way would I do such a thing. But the devil doesn't show up and say, buy me. The devil doesn't show up and say, take me. The devil doesn't show up and say, uh, allow me into your life. Instead, he always takes the allurement of sin and places it before the believer. So I think her luring sort of reminds me of, of sin. But then I would say this, her loyalty reminds me of sin. He said, what do you mean, preacher? Well, when we read in our text, in chapter 3, man, Solomon's a young man. He's not built the temple. He's not built his own house. The uh, rest of the Word of God tells us that 20 years had passed after he had married her and built the temple and built his own house. It only took him seven years to build the temple, but it took him longer uh, to build his own house. And at that point, he expelled her out of Jerusalem. We'll say a word about that here in just a moment. But Solomon, he's a young man when he marries her. And now here we are in chapter 11, and Solomon is an old man. That's what the text said. When he was old, his wives turned away his heart. But you know something that never changed? Pharaoh's daughter never changed. He never won her over to his side. She won him over to her side. And that sort of reminds me of what sin does. You know, sin will never change allegiances. Listen carefully. You can never make sin work for you. We think we can, don't we? We think we can get in and get out before our life falls to pieces, but it never works that way. You listen? It never works that way. Uh, sin will never be a service animal for you. It will always treat you like a pack mule. It will always ride you. Uh, old Lester Olaf used to preach a message on the, the mule walked on in the life of Absalom. Uh, whenever that mule that had carried him to rebellion, had carried him to insurrection, had carried him to, to usurpation, whenever that mule, they came across that oak branch hanging down and it caught him by the hair, that mule didn't think twice. It just walked off and let him swing there and hang. You know, that's how sin is in our life. You mark her down, sin's loyalty is never to your happiness or your pleasure. Sin will never stop and take account of how you feel about the destruction that it's providing and wreaking in your life. Its loyalty, its duty is always to its Father. Understand that sin will always serve the devil's interest. Sin will never serve your interest. It has never, listen, it has never been in your interest or mine to sin. It has never been to our well-being to sin. We may believe that we may achieve some temporal goal by uh, engaging in it, but sooner or later, it will always master us. So here's, I read this passage. Here's, here's Solomon, man. Everything's going well for him. Everything's going well. And then he marries this woman. And all of a sudden, his life begins a slow decline. Can I tell you this, by the way? If you were to read back in, in chapter 3, you know what you'd find? And I'm just going, I'm going to, if you ain't going to preach me, I won't preach. I'll just talk, all right? Back in chapter number 3, you know what we find? We find that that after Solomon marries her, you know, you would think the rest of the chapter would be, and now here's what Solomon did wrong, and here's what Solomon did wrong, and here's what Solomon did wrong. But you know that's not what happened. You know, instead, when you read Brother Charlie in chapter 3, you know what happens after Solomon marries her? The voice of God appears to him. God promises him wisdom. You know, I found this to be true. We sort of imagine that if we sin, there'll just be a total lockdown on our spiritual life. But you know that's rarely the case. You know what sin acts like? Now, there are times it can bring immediate destruction, but sin acts like an ankle weight in our, in our Christian walk. It just slows us. It just drags us down. Now, sooner or later, that weight will be enough to trip you up. 
But at the very first, you can still walk with it for a little while. This is part of what's so deceptive about sin in the life of believers. They they commit sin and they think all of a sudden the sky's going to fall on them. And then it don't. And they say to themselves, you know, this ain't that bad. I can still sin and go to church. That's right, you can. Look around. you see all these people? Yeah, you can still sin and go to church. You can still sin and read your Bible. Listen, listen carefully. There, there is, there is the, how do I say this? The Word of God speaks to us in more than one way. You know, the Word of God contains truth that we in our minds have the ability to, to perceive and ingest irrespective of our spiritual condition. There are certain things that you could take a Bible and read to a dead lost man and he could learn some things about God and never know God, never feel the presence of God, never hear the voice or the Spirit of God. But he reads the Word. And you know what he, you know what he hears? He hears the echo, but he don't hear the voice. You know what happens in a lot of Christians' lives? They get in sin, and then they come to church, and a, a sermon will be preached, and it might touch on some area of their life a little bit, and they'll deal with it, and they'll address that thing. And they think they're right with God, even though there's this sin that they're aware of, that they know of, they know it's present in their life that they're not dealing with. But they say to themselves, I'm still on terms with God. I went to an altar. I wept. I cried. God dealt with me. Yeah, you heard the echo. But there's a difference between hearing the echo and hearing the voice. The Word of God has power. The Word of God can deal with your life and mine and us out of complete fellowship with God. Just because, you know, Solomon hears the voice of God later on. You know what he did? He built the temple. You know, you can serve God and be living in sin. You don't believe it. Let me tell you some stories of some preachers I've known. Built great churches. Come to find out after the fact they had dark sin in their life. You can still serve God with sin in your life. Say, preacher, what's the point then in living clean? Why should I? What can I not do and live in sin? You can't walk with God and live in sin. Solomon, he, he, he maintained some sort of spirituality, some sort of relationship, but sooner or later it caught up with him. How did this take place? Let's just notice a few instructive things. Back in chapter 3, we've read this already, but let's notice it again. I want to say a word about the espousal to the devil's daughter. How did he get yoked up with this woman? I mean, they didn't listen. They didn't meet over the Internet. They didn't meet through a, a common friend. How was it that they got set up together? Well, the Bible says that Solomon made affinity with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David. I'll pause there. I noticed that it was not of Solomon's own making, nor was it of the daughter's own making, but it seems to me like Pharaoh was there pulling strings behind this whole time. And I notice a few things about it. One, I notice it was a perverse marriage. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, God had already warned Solomon not to marry Gentile women. Now, let me tell you, I understand. I'm married to a Gentile woman, all right? And I understand the woes and dangers of it. Everybody in this room is probably married. If you're married to a woman, you're married to a Gentile woman, chances are. God, God had no prejudice against Gentiles. Uh, it's just they weren't Jews. They weren't His people. And as such, he did not want a relationship between them perverting and polluting his influence on the children of Israel's lives. So in other words, I'm saying this. Solomon didn't do something that he didn't know any better about. Can I just make a statement to you this morning? We know better. We need to quit acting like we aren't the most biblically educated generation in human history. Because we are. We're the most biblically educated generation in human history. We have Bible available to us at all times, unlimited. We have as much preaching as we want to listen to. We have as much singing as we want to listen to. We have as many study helps and, and, and commentaries. And, and beyond all, even if we didn't have none of that, we've got a King James Bible and that's enough. So we need to quit acting like we don't know no better. Because we know what sin is. We know what sin is. The Bible clearly defines sin for us. The Bible clearly demarcates what sin is. And you know, I found this. A person can know right and still do wrong. That seems silly. It seems elementary to the point of, uh, of foolishness. But it seems like a thing that we all still struggle with. I don't know about you, but I, I can't remember the last time I committed a sin I didn't know was a sin. Seems like the only sin I ever get involved in is stuff I ought to know better about. Seems like the only sin I ever get involved in is stuff that I've been been taught about ever since I was little and I know it's wrong and I know it's sin and I knew it was sin when I did it and I knew it was sin after I did it. Just like Solomon. Here's the deceit that we play in our minds. We imagine that we are so pure that we would only in ignorance trespass against God. 
But that's foolishness. You know what we do by doing that? We, we sanitize human nature. We sanitize the flesh and we claim that we are not as prone to sin as the next person. Can I tell you something? Find the worst sin, the worst person you can find and understand that in your flesh lives the same capability to do what they did. I see it was a perverse marriage. But then number two, I noticed this, that it was a political marriage. And you say, what do you mean? Well, how many of you know this to be true? You don't just marry your spouse. You marry your spouse's family. Any of y'all learn that the hard way? Be careful how you answer. You don't just marry your spouse. You marry your spouse's family. That was true for Solomon, wasn't it? Isn't it interesting the way your King James Bible says this? says it just as it ought to be said. The Bible says Solomon... It doesn't say Solomon made affinity with Pharaoh's daughter. It says Solomon made affinity with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he took Pharaoh's daughter. You see, you don't just marry your spouse, you also marry their family. And Solomon, he thought he was marrying Pharaoh's daughter. But the Bible says the marriage was with Pharaoh. You know, we think we're just getting the sin. But satanic control comes with it. We think all we're getting is the pleasure. We think all we're getting is the enjoyment. We think all we're getting is is the endorphin of, of feeling like we got away with something or whatever it might be. But there's always a family that comes with it. You think Satan's going to give you anything for free? One of the great deceptions of, of this age is the notion that anything free exists. People used to say it all the time. It was a, it was a turn of phrase. Ain't nothing free in this world. Uh, what was the old phrase? Ain't no free lunches, right? And the school started giving people free lunches and we couldn't say that anymore. <laughs> ain't nothing free. You know, ain't nothing free. This, this has been one of the great failures of society today. We think, you listen, we think, we think that email account is free. But it costs us our privacy. We think that television is free. But it costs us the advertising dollars. This is a truism of a lie that everything has value and everything costs something. And the same thing is true about sin. There's no sin you or I commit that doesn't come with a price tag attached to it. You think that you can sin and still maintain control. But you know, it's a funny thing the Lord said. He said, no man can serve two masters. You're either going to serve God or you're going to serve mammon. Mammon being the temporal world controlled by the devil. We think we can serve ourselves. But we, no man ever serves himself. No man's truly free. We all have a master. The question is, what master do we have? What master do we have? Uh, Solomon thought he was free. You know, probably long decades went by that he thought he was a sovereign ruler in control of his own destiny. But we find that there was a steady flow of linen and horses and chariots and wealth. It's always coming up from Egypt. Isn't it strange that if Solomon... What was the purpose of all this? Well, it was a trade marriage. It was an economic marriage. You know why? Because he wanted something from Pharaoh, but Pharaoh said, I'm going to get something from you. If I'm going to give you my daughter, Solomon, I've got to be able to come and visit her, so you're going to have to keep trade routes open. And if trade routes are going to be open, we might as well send some chariots and some horses and some gold and some linen that you can buy. We might as well be prospered and enriched by this relationship. And I'm just saying this, you and I think we can sin and then walk away, but it does not work that way. I see it was a political marriage. But then I see it was a polluting marriage. The text says here that he brought her into the city of David. Now this is going to become a problem for him later on in his life. But at this moment, suffice it to say that the Holy Ghost goes out of its way to point out how inappropriate it was that this Egyptian woman was sitting as queen over God's land. Can I tell you this? Sin will always affect more than we think it will affect. Solomon had a family. Solomon had children. By the way, you know later on it was an Egyptian, Brother Charlie, wasn't it? It was an Egyptian by the name of Jeroboam that ripped the throne away from Rehoboam. You know, it could have been maybe if they was a little more weary of the influence of Egypt upon Israel, that would have never happened to them. But suffice it to say, you let sin into your life, it won't just touch the areas you want it to. It won't just deal with the areas that you want it to. I, I've always thought it was funny. We, I've been watching through all this pandemic stuff and and, and, and I'm not going to get too political this morning. You're, you're not letting me preach as it is, so I'm not going to. I'm going to make it worse. But it's so funny to watch through all this pandemic stuff. People go to grocery stores and and they're, they're very careful and very cautious. Um, and then they'll they'll pay with money that they and all of creation have handled. They'll take home items that they and all of creation have handled. 
they'll handle doorknobs that they and all of creation. Now, I'm not, I'm not against your caution. Don't misunderstand me. I'm just saying, could it be that we need to recognize that it's it's either gonna it's either gonna take a lot more or a lot less? It's either going to take, I mean, if, if we're going to protect ourselves the way that we feel like we need to, we're going to have to climb under the covers and pull a blanket over our head and shut the shades. And Because if you interact with humanity, you're exposing yourself at all times. And you know, the problem is this, the germs just won't stay where we want them to. I, one of the things that has baffled me ever since the beginning of this is this, this, this magical virus that can only travel six feet. It's always puzzled me. How strange. I don't know how they knew that. They didn't know anything about it when this thing started, except it can't go any further than 72 inches. They didn't know where it came from. They didn't know what it would do. They didn't know its effects. They didn't know how long it could live on surfaces. They didn't know any of these things. They knew it could not travel further than 72 inches. But you know that's illogical, right? I mean, if it exists, it can probably go wherever it wants to go, or maybe it goes a lot less, or whatever. My point being is the, the, the sticky thing about it is germs just won't stay where you want them to. And you put your hand on one thing that somebody else has touched, there's going to be germs there. You you walk through the air that somebody else has walked through, there's probably going to be germs there. You handle money that somebody else has handled, there's probably going to be germs there. You see, the fact is this, if if this thing is, is out there and if it's affecting people, it's probably so pervasive that it's just everywhere. You ever let your kids play with Play-Doh? I don't even have to say nothing. I just saw a bunch of parents go... It's just everywhere, man. It's just everywhere. You know, sin, it behaves exactly the same way. Sin, it would be real convenient if sin, if you could build a little pen and say, now you stay here and don't affect anything else in my life. Because you know, sin just won't mind and won't behave. If you let sin in your life, you think it's only going to affect this. You say to yourself, I'm willing to cede this area of my life to sin. But the problem is it won't stay there. Everything that now you touch will be tainted by that seed. Everything now that you deal with will now be tainted through the prism of that seed. You say, how is that, preacher? Well, you're going to make decisions in life, but the problem is you're always going to have a blind spot about your own sin. Because the only way you can maintain that sin in your life. So you'll go to make decisions, but you'll always have to take into account the sin you're harboring in your life to do so. It won't stay in one place. It'll always move around. This was a polluting marriage. Would have been good if he could have married her and kept her in Egypt, I guess. But the problem is, she was his wife. She was going to come live with him. And that meant living in the city of David. This seemed to work for a while. I don't know. It seems as though some tension developed and built because we read later on, and there's a passage that references it in 1 Kings, but I want to read the the, the comparable verse in Second Chronicles. It says in Second Chronicles 8.11 that there was something that changed about the nature of their relationship. In, in 1 Kings 3, 1, we see his espousal to the devil's daughter. Listen to what it says in 2 Chronicles 8, 11. And Solomon brought up the daughter of Pharaoh out of the city of David under the house that he had built for her. For he said, My wife shall not dwell in the house of David, king of Israel. This is why I said that. Because the places are holy whereunto the ark of the Lord hath come. I don't know about you, but that must have been a whale of a fight. <laughs> I'm sorry, honey, I'm kicking you out of the house because you're a pagan and you're not holy enough to live here. But I'm not going with you because I'm all right. But you're just going to have to go. Tell me how you really feel, you know. I see her, I see not only his espousal to the devil's daughter, but I see his exile of the devil's daughter. In other words, there came a point in his life where Solomon realized that this was not tenable. Wasn't working. I don't know what happened. I don't know what occasioned it. But he came to a place where he said, Honey, this isn't working out. The only way we're going to be able to maintain this is you're going to have to go your way and I'm going to have to go mine and you're going to have to leave this place. I sort of think this. I don't think he came to that conclusion in a moment. I kind of wonder why, if Solomon's so concerned about the sanctity of the city of David, why he had let her live there for 20 years. You know what I tend to believe? And you might disagree with me about this. It's probably not the only thing we disagree about. But you know what I tend to believe? I tend to believe that it reached a point where he said, her culture, her mind frame, her way of living is not compatible with this city anymore. She's become a pariah. She's become someone people whisper and gossip about. She's unwilling to assimilate to the people of God and to Israel. So something's going to have to be done. You know, i got to credit him that at least he recognized there was a problem. 
I noticed three things here in this text. One, he recognized her as a pagan. So Solomon is not operating under the delusion anymore that there's no difference. He's aware that this is a problem. He's aware that she has no business being here. Can I say this? The first step in your life is when you quit ignoring the problem. When you quit acting like your sin is not sin and not a problem. When you quit behaving as though it might be sin in someone else's life, but somehow you've got some special heaven sent exemption where in your life it's okay and it's permitted. He was willing to acknowledge that something was wrong. That was the first step. He recognized her as a, as a pagan. You know what I see? The next thing he did? He removed her to a different place. It's interesting that that would be a strategy. And I'll tell you why I think so. I would think if I'm going to get to this place, you've got to imagine that initially this devastated their relationship. And wouldn't you think it would have been easier for Solomon to just say, now listen, this ain't working anymore. I'm going to put you away. You'll, you'll, you know, you'll, I'll take care of you the rest of your life, but you're no longer going to be a queen and, and I'm going to put you away and we're severing this marriage and this relationship. But he didn't do that. You know what he did? He hid her away. You know, very often in our life when we get sin in our life, for a long time we live and pretend as though it's not sin. We act as though we're exempt. It's different in our case. It's not what the Bible's talking about. It's not what the preacher's preaching on. We're, we're just we're, There's just a misunderstanding. But sooner or later we're going to reach a place where that's not tenable anymore. And we have two choices. We can either get rid of it or we can hide it away. Solomon hid his sin. He removed her from public life. He removed her from religious life. He said if she can't uh, be compatible with this way of living in Jerusalem, I'm not going to get rid of her. I'll just move her to a place where less people see her. That's what believers do, isn't it, Brother Charlie? We get sin in our life and we reach a place where it's affecting our marriage and it's affecting our kids and it's affecting our church and it's affecting our walk with God and we have a choice. Now, the right thing to do is to get rid of it But so often we just say, I'm just going to dig it in deeper and hide it further away. You see, it is impossible. The first step in self-deception is deception of others. You know why that is? We learned this as a little child when the emperor had no clothes, right? Had to deceive everybody else if he was to deceive himself. If we can't deceive everybody else, you know the problem with that? You know the story of the emperor with no clothes. Eventually somebody comes in that has no vested interest in playing along with the hoax. And they say, why has the emperor got no clothes on? You know why we have to hide it away? Because sooner or later somebody's going to call us on it. And how can we ignore our sin if they won't ignore our sin? Can I tell you the, the, the dirty little deal of the American church today? Is I'll ignore your sin if you'll ignore my sin. And thereby the emperor walks around with no clothes. That's the church to them. That's what Solomon was doing. He was saying, this is going to continue to be a problem if I flout this in public. So I've got to hide her away where no one will see her. And in doing so, you know what he did? He found it in our text. He opened his heart to her. The thing that retained him ever falling in love with her was the fact that I think he knew and understood that they were always living on borrowed time. But when he hides her away, you know what happens? He really grows fond of her. In listen, you know when we fall in love with sin? In the darkness of deceit. When You know when sin really gets its hooks in us? When we manage to hide it away from everyone and nobody knows about it. And therefore, we're able to have our own relationship with our sin problem without anybody intruding into it. I, I, when I read this, I find that he, he recognized her as a pagan and, and he, he removed her from the palace, but then I noticed he did the thing he shouldn't have done. He retained her position. He should have sent her away, but he said, I'm going to keep you with influence in my life. I'm going to keep you as a queen. I'm going to maintain you as my wife. And in doing so, he sealed his fate. When I read through this, I I find in chapter 3, his espousal to the devil's daughter. And in in chapter number, uh, uh, Second Chronicles chapter 8, I find his exile of the devil's daughter. But finally, in chapter 11, our text, we find his embrace of her. I'm going to keep it short. I've already not done that. so. But I notice a few things in our text. I'll just mention them to you and be done. First, I notice her control. 2 Kings chapter 11 says something about this relationship that no other place in the Bible says. You know what it says? It says that he loved her. It says he loved many strange women together with 
the daughter of Pharaoh. doesn't say that back in chapter 3. doesn't say he loved her. certainly doesn't say it in Second Chronicles 8 when it says that he kicked her out of the house and sent her back and it doesn't say he loved her. But now all of a sudden he loves her. It's interesting because in Second Kings chapter 3, the first passage in this journey of their relationship when they're espoused, it says he took the daughter of Pharaoh. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not real romantic language. That's probably, listen, I'll give some advice to, to young people um, and, and young men, especially if you're going um, if, if to propose to a woman, you probably don't want to say, I want to capture you. Maybe you can frame it in some hallmark way that sounds romantic, but I wouldn't risk that. I'd probably try to be a little more delicate in saying that. It says he took her. It implies control, right? He took her. He had control, or he thought he did. But now we come all the way down and listen to this. What you love controls you. That's a general truth. That's a what we call a truism. In other words, it's true across the board. What you love controls you. That's why people that have nothing to lose are dangerous people. The only thing that maintains social order is that we're all prosperous and, and healthy and comfortable and, and, and we, we, we have enjoyable lives. If not, we would have rose up like four months ago. But everybody's sitting around thinking I can either do that or sit around and watch football. And I, I don't want, we're all, we're all, we have something to lose. You know why? Because we love those things. What you love controls you. Now all of a sudden he loves her. He thought he controlled her. But at the end of the day, we find she controlled him. Your sin will eventually control you. It'll control you. We look with, with a skewed glance at people that are addicts. And we treat them like, oh, I can't believe they'd let something like that needle or that bottle or that pill control them. But you know that needle and that bottle and that pill, those things are sin, but they're just one example of sin. There's a lot of people that are viciously controlled by the sin that they are engaged in. It might be immoral, sexual sin, psychological sin. It might be the sin of greed or of pride. But they're as addicted to it and it is as controlling of them as what the addict puts in their body. You know why? Because it is not the chemical. It's the spiritual. It's not the chemical. It's the spiritual. Part of my problem with, with, with you know, a lot of secular ideology concerning helping people in those situations is they, they substitute one addiction for another addiction. A lot of times people leave that life and they become workaholics. They neglect their family or they leave that life and, and they become obsessed hobbyists about something. And it's because they have grown accustomed to the shackles around their wrists and their feet. Here's the truth. Your sin will control you unless you let Christ control it. Those are the choices. I see her control. Number two, I see her companions. She did a strange thing. The Bible says that he loved many strange women together with the daughter of Pharaoh. Now, I don't know that that's meant in a lurid way, although I, I suppose it could be. But I think rather what it's implying, if you look at the language, it seems to me like what it's saying is that she brought these women to him and encouraged him to engage in these political marriages, whatever they may have been. And probably her intention, maybe I'm imputing guilt to her, I shouldn't, but probably her intention was this. She's tired of being the only pagan in the house. It was probably a lonely life for her. And she probably got tired of it. But there seems to be a deep association. It doesn't just seem like this is, you know, he married her and then he married a bunch of other women. It seems like she brought these women in. You know, that's what sin does. Sin always brings its companions. That's part of the reason it, 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 it pollutes, it corrupts everything it touches. That's part of the reason it won't stay in one place. is because it will always bring other sins in. I could tell the tales. You've read them. You've read about serial killers that would tell you that they're their depravity began with pornography. I could talk to you about what addicts have engaged in and how they tell you that it all began with some lesser quote-unquote drug, whatever it is. I don't even know what that means anymore. Liberal states are legalizing like heroin now, so I don't even know how we even talk about that stuff anymore. But suffice it to say, uh, every sin is a gateway sin. You remember when they talk about gateway drugs? Gateway drugs. They'd say, well, this is a gateway drug. That's a gateway drug. That's not a gateway drug. Every sin is a gateway sin. It will always lead to more. We think it's going to be a happy, monogamous, solitary marriage between us and our sin. But it never turns out that way, does it? I see, I see her companions. I see her corruption. 
We can preach a whole message on this, but the Bible says that they turned his heart. They turned his heart. We think that we can love God and engage in sin at the same time. But you know, Christ said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Therefore, committing sin is actually a way of expressing an absence of love towards the Lord. We're taught this at a very young age, right? This isn't complex stuff. But we're taught at a very young age that the way we show the Lord we love Him is we obey. We obey. Somehow in the years, we we miss that. We forget that. We think that we can love God with all of our heart while living in sin. But living in sin definitionally is not loving God. So how can we do both? Sooner or later, it's going to turn our heart. You can read through and read how it turned his heart. But you know what I find? I find the consequences of all this. And I'm going to mention this and be done with my first half of my introduction. I find the consequences. And you know, I see that it really it brought three things in Solomon's life. You know, this is what sin will do to you and me. First is it brought separation. The Bible says the Lord was angry with Solomon. Now, I don't mean to suggest that God abandoned Solomon. He didn't. They had been, they had been walking together. They had been enjoying fellowship and communion together. But as his heart turned away, you know, isn't that how it is in our life? Isn't it true in, in your life and mine that as our love diminishes for someone, our interactions with them do too? We just kind of quit talking to them, quit calling them, quit spending time. We just sort of, you know why? Our heart is turning away from them. You know that'll happen in your life with sin as well. And it'll happen and you not even know it. It'll happen and you not even recognize it until you wake up one day and realize it's been months since you've talked to God. Until you wake up and realize it's been months since you've read your Bible. It's been months since you've really heard from God, sat in the message, listened to the Word of God preached, and the Holy Ghost dealt with your heart. You don't realize it's happening. You don't think it is happening. But then all of a sudden, some of y'all are at a stage and age in life that you've lost parents. And you'd give anything if you'd go back and just make one more phone call. I'm not, I'm not going to wrench emotional strings this morning, but suffice it to say, at the time, you didn't feel like you was wasting time. I don't, I understand, I mean this, I mean this, Tenderly, when I use the word neglect, I'm not saying you did neglect them, but I'm saying if you feel like you did, you probably look back and think, I didn't think I was neglecting them. And then one day they were gone. And you couldn't call them anymore. You couldn't talk to them anymore. You couldn't go see them anymore. You didn't realize that was happening until it happened. I'm thankful the Lord's not dying. I'm thankful the Lord's not going anywhere. I'm thankful He's not leaving us. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. I'm just merely saying this. Solomon, if you'd come to him and said, now, if you marry this Egyptian woman, it's going to destroy your life. He said, I'd never do that. I'd never do that. But over the years, him and God grew distant from each other. I see the separation that it brought. I see the suffering that it brought. The Lord tells Solomon, said, this is going to destroy the whole kingdom. I'm going to rip the kingdom in two. I'm going to take part of it and give it to somebody else. And he says, it's only grace, Solomon, that's permitting me to leave one part of it with your descendants. Because of David, I'm going to leave a little remnant. But he said, this is literally going to rip the kingdom apart. Preacher, sin is no big deal. It'll rip your kingdom apart. Everything you preside over, everything you love, everything you value, it'll shred it to pieces. But you know the worst part of all of it is the sorrow that it brought. I don't know if you notice it. We read it in our text. But the Bible says, that God says to Solomon, says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to destroy the kingdom. But I'm not going to do it in your life. I'm going to do it in your son's life. Now, I'm thinking like a parent. And I'm thinking to myself, if I'm Solomon, my next prayer would be, God, don't. Do it in my life. I can handle it. I can deal with it. Let me make preparations. Let me try to guard him against that. Let me try to secure the kingdom. But God says, no, 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 no. I'm not going to do it in your life. I'm going to do it in your child's life. And Solomon, however many years he had to live, had to live with the constant dread of the consequences of his sin on the lives of those that he loved. What a miserable time. What a miserable life Solomon must have led in his older years. He'd lead to us a tome of wisdom and instruction where over and over and over again he'd cry out and say, Vanity! of vanities, all is vanity. What would make a man think that? 
Well, I guess maybe if he's looking around at a kingdom that generations have built, at a temple that he's poured himself into, and knowing that because of his sin, every bit of it's going to burn away. That might cause a man to sit around and suffer in his older years. might cause a man to be sorrowful as he thinks about the consequences of it. Now listen, if you've made mistakes in your life, and that should include all of us, if we're honest, I'm not saying any of this to overburden you, but i got young people here. And just, listen, you old people, and you can decide if you're in that category or not. You say, who's old? The person next to you is old. Not you. O- older people. Older people. Just like I wouldn't abandon you to preach to our young people. I won't abandon them to preach to our older people. Whatever, listen, whatever mistakes you made, the grace of God is sufficient for it. But listen to me, young people. Understand that sooner or later, sin will reap fruit in your life. It will bring fruit in your life. There was grace even in Solomon's day. But I'm saying to you, it's not a small thing. It's not a slight thing when you marry the devil's daughter. How, preacher, how could I do that? You live in sin. That's what you're doing. The same path that Solomon walked is what you're walking. So the question is this morning, preacher, I've made mistakes. I've done those things in my life. What can I do? Well, don't just shuffle your sin somewhere where eyes can't see it. Put it under the blood of Christ. Put it under the grace of God. Seek the Lord for victory. Ask God to deliver you from it. You know what you'll find? He's able. He's sufficient. He's capable. But you're going to have to come to Him and let Him do it for you. Let's bow together this morning as a musician comes to play. The altar is open. And you know it never really closes around here. Anytime you need to deal with God, you can deal with Him. But I really think there's two kinds of folks this morning that might need to do business with God. And it's it's sweet the way the Holy Spirit does this because there doesn't have to be any embarrassment in meeting with the Lord. One could be people that have some areas of their life not yielded to the Lord. Some sin in their life that needs to be dealt with. Can I tell you the grace of God is sufficient? You ought to come down and let Him deal with it. Let Him take care of it. He's capable this morning. But the other might be some that would just say, Preacher, my heart is burdened for others that I see walking this path and I don't want to walk that path myself. And I want, I want God to safeguard me to vouchsafe me against it in my walk with Him. If that's you, you ought to find a place down here and ask God for His help in that. Ask Him to intervene in the lives of others. Father, bless this invitation. May it glorify Your Son. We ask it in Jesus' name.